And we are in Matthew 26. We have Proverbs 3 marked. Let's pray. Father, here we are, Lord. Just like Mary this morning, sitting at your feet, all the busyness of yesterday, the busyness of getting back to school, the busyness of of getting a schedule and routine back in our lives uh, is all uh, distant from us right now, Lord. And and all that we have yet to do today and all that is scheduled for the week to come, Lord, I pray that you would just put that stuff out of our minds for a time so that we might love you with our minds for this next hour, Lord. Just focused on you. We pray that you would draw us close, especially those that have been far from you. I know there are among us those that have just been a little distant. And so this morning, Lord, I pray that you draw them close. Just as your son is lifted up, that you would draw all men to yourself. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes so that we could see wonderful things from your word. That you would purify our lives through the truth. And that you would just bless us as we hunger and thirst after righteousness. We love you, we, we desire to worship you the best we can in these corrupting mortal bodies. We give you all that we can on this day, Lord, because of what you've done for us. We're just responding, and it's in your son's name that we pray, and all of God's people said, amen, amen. If you would indulge me, and we could just start uh, before we do Matthew 26, Let's just look quickly at Proverbs 3. So I know you marked it. Let's just go there right away. As I said, this is one of those verses that has I come back to fairly often. And I had to come back to it as I was reading uh, last Sunday. I went home and, and started just digging into the next portion in our study of the life of Jesus. And as I was reading it, I just found myself having so many questions like, how did, how did we get here? How is this happening to Jesus? I mean, he's, he's, he was betrayed, really? Uh, he, he was falsely accused? He was condemned to death? How, how did that happen and so quickly? And I just came back to, to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path or your your journey or your way. And as I look at the path that Jesus is walking down, I mean, if I was walking down that path, I would have a lot of questions. God, why are you doing this in my life? Why is this happening to me? And no doubt, many of you right now come with those same exact questions. It is nothing new. You're going through something, you go, I don't understand. And that's why I go back to this and I say, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean, the word lean in Hebrew, it means means to put your weight on something for support. And this is funny to me because a lot of people say, well, Christianity is a crutch. You know it. Christianity is a crutch. The Bible says your own reasoning is a crutch. Christianity is the truth. Your reasoning is a crutch, and it's a crutch that can't hold you up. And so when we try to lean on our own ability to reason and figure out what's happening, 
we realize that God's ways are higher than our ways, and we can't always understand what God is doing in that moment and at that time and how this is working out. And that's why I don't have to worry about understanding. You know, we even th- be anxious for nothing, the Bible says, right? Bring your prayers, your supplications to him, and he'll give you a, a peace that passes understanding. It doesn't come from your understanding. It's not because he shows you what he's doing. It's because you trust him. You've let him know. You know he's working things out. And you say, I don't necessarily have to understand. I don't necessarily have to have that crutch in my life of leaning on my own understanding. But here's what I can do. In in all the ways that I act, in all the things that I do, in all your ways, acknowledge or know him. In all your ways, he should be known. In all the things that you do, the decisions that you make, they should honor and make him known. And they should come from knowing him. That's what we're called to do. And that's why Jesus was praying in the garden, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. In his own understanding, he might say, now, of course, he's God in in human form. So, you know, he knows everything. But even still, his human side is going, I don't, this isn't, this isn't a, a happy place for me. So as I, now we're, let's go ahead back to Matthew 26, because as I read this, you know, we're, we're looking again at, at the, a very intense, very intense passage. Very intense. These next couple of weeks, you know, I encourage you to do what you can to get here to follow through, because this is our redemption being lived out. You know, to redeem something means to pay the price to buy it back. And we know Jesus didn't come as a businessman to earn a lot of money, to pay cash for me and you, did he? He came as a suffering servant to bleed and pay for our lives with his death, with his blood. And so what we're seeing is the redemption, our redemption, being bought in these passages. And it is intense, and it doesn't make any sense. And for Matthew, we look back at... um, Uh, In the last section that we we studied, look, verse 54 of chapter 26. How then could the scriptures be fulfilled? Verse 56. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And this has been Matthew's thing all the way through. Jesus is the one that the Bible points to. He's the one. There's no doubt about it. Because we're going to look at this passage and we're going to shake our heads and we're going to scratch our our heads and we're going to go... Man, things are falling apart. Things are coming unglued for this Jesus. I mean, first, Satan now is involved. He he enters into the heart of Judas to betray him. And that begins this cycle where within a 24-hour period, it seems that Jesus has lost control. That everything is now, it it just become uh, a mess he goes from this, this rabbi who has a following and they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest when he's, the, you know, the, the, when he's in the kingdom and, and they're so confident. And now all of a sudden, everything that they thought is in question. Everything they understood is being, being called on the carpet. And, and everybody is just reeling as he's arrested. Wait, he's arrested? Really? I mean, he's arrested? For what? What did he do? And it seems that, and now the last verse we read at the end of verse 56, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. His closest friends have abandoned him. Do you see that everything in the life of Jesus is coming unglued, is coming unraveled and quickly? Or 
everything is falling into place. But see, we would look at it in our understanding and say, everything's, you know, you look at your own life and you say, man, how can this, my life is falling apart. I thought when I became a Christian, everything would come together. But now it seems like things are falling apart. How do you know? How do you know things are falling apart? If you judge it by what you see right now, because Jesus is going to come out of the grave. And he's going to be resurrected. But it's not happening right now. So what is happening right now? It's a long introduction. So let's see what is happening now. All the disciples forsook him and fled. In verse 57, And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. If you've just joined us today for this study, uh, what you have missed is basically Jesus has eaten his, what will be his last meal before he's crucified. He'll, he won't eat again until after he's resurrected. He shared what we call the Lord's Supper or the Passover with his disciples. Um, that was on one evening. And then he goes out to the garden to pray. That's when he gets betrayed. He gets arrested. So it's the middle of the night. It's no wonder Peter and James and John, they're snoozing when they should be praying. They're tired. It's nighttime. It's late at night. And all of these events we're going to read are happening through the wee hours of the morning, all through the middle of the night. So when Jesus goes to the cross in the morning, he will have not eaten or had anything to drink until that time, I mean, from, for, uh, you know, th- for this period from, from the Last Supper till then. So he's been betrayed, he gets arrested, and, and he's bound, and he's led now to the house of Caiaphas, who is the high priest. Um, what we don't read here is there was a first meeting with a man named Annas. Annas was Caiaphas's father-in-law, who was really the power behind the high priest. So really, Annas was the one who wielded all the power, and he went, they brought Jesus to him first. And then he's taken to this man, Caiaphas, who is the high priest. He's appointed by the Romans, and has some, uh, so it's a very political position at this point. And who else is there at Caiaphas's house, at his personal residence? The scribes and the elders. So these are all the religious leaders. These are the people whose profession it is to know God's word and to teach God's word and to represent God. And they're all assembled there. And in in they bring Jesus. But Peter followed him at a distance. Now it said earlier that all the disciples forsook him and fled. They all took off into the woods in the middle of the night when when the um, Romans came with their torches and their clubs to arrest Jesus. They took off. But Peter, it seems, kind of hid out, and he's been watching. And the Bible says, you know, he followed him at a distance. And we might tend to just really criticize Jesus, I mean, criticize Peter for that. But at least he's still following. The others have really, they've just scattered. But Peter, he's following at a distance, and he's trying to sort this all out. I think he's confused, he's fearing he wants to see what's going to happen. He went in and sat with the servants to see the end. He wants, where is this all going? And maybe, it's in, maybe it's now that Jesus is going to throw off the chains and call down the angels and, and he's going to take over. He wants to be there when that happens. So he can, you know, see, Jesus, I told you I wasn't going to forsake you. You know, I told you I wouldn't deny you. Could be. Could be that, and we know that he's afraid a little bit right now to be identified with Jesus, isn't he? Jesus is a marked man. 
And he's a bit afraid to be identified with him, to be too close. And I believe that there may be some in here this morning that uh, are sort of in that same place. You know, you're, you're here, but you're sort of following at a distance because, you know, you, you, you're not really sure you want to be identified with Jesus yet. But, you know, you like some of the teaching and, and kind of the church is cool. The music is pretty good. It's not like the traditional church you'd heard about. And so, so you come, but you're sort of following at a distance, not ready yet to, to be identified with him. Still worried about what people might say if they knew that you were one of his followers. And even as, you know, we, we, we get into this place, you know, personally, um, there's times we find ourselves following a little more at a distance than we used to. You know, there was a day when, when, when we were really close, and, and this word at a distance means that two things, two people that once were very close, now there's, there's, they're separated. And so maybe, you know, maybe you see a little bit of yourself in Peter, that maybe there was a time when you were following close to him, but... Other people are influencing your life, and, and maybe they're not Christian, and so maybe now you're, you're a little afraid to identify with him or be identified with him because of what it might cost you or what it might mean to other people. And so, you know, you can under, we understand Peter. I think we, we can't be too hard on, on some folks when we read about him because we see ourselves in him, don't we? I want to be close to him. I want to be close to him. It's easy to say... You miss that intimacy, don't you? When, when you have it, if you've ever known it, if you've known what it means to be close to God, and then something happens or, or you know, life happens and scheduling happens, and then you find yourself, you're, you're following a little bit more at a distance, and you just go, man, I really miss what I had in Christ, what I had that closeness to him. And, and my heart, I know when I feel that, I just want to get back. I just want to do what it takes to get back to that closeness, spending that time with him that I used to. But Peter wants to see where this is all going. Verse 59, now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. So the picture is here of a, this is the, the, most tremendous mockery of justice. You know, if any of you have ever thought you've been unfairly treated in a situation, well, that wasn't fair. Well, this is, the, this is so unfair and so illegal according to their own laws. This, the Sanhedrin is the ruling body of the, of the religious Jews. It's a group of, of men that made the decisions and, and, uh, for the Jewish people that religiously at that time. And they were not supposed to gather in the middle of the night. It was illegal, according to their own law. They're supposed to have their trials during the daytime for a capital offense. But here they are, gathered in the middle of the night, behind closed doors, in secret, determining already the course of action that will be taken the next morning. So what happens is now we have a a small group of these leaders gathered together for a pre-trial. And then they will gather together in the morning for a more formal trial to just ratify what was already decided behind closed doors. You ever get that impression when you watch the news that what you're reading about, like what's behind that is all kinds of things and wheeling and dealing that's happened behind closed doors? And all we see is kind of what the news tells us. Well, the news, CNN, Jerusalem, wouldn't be reporting this. It wouldn't have been known because it was all taking place in secret in the middle of the night. But Matthew because of being a disciple and his his relationship to the Jews and the Romans, he knows this stuff. 
So what are they seeking? What are they looking for? They're looking for false testimony against Jesus. They can't find any true testimony against him. The guys lived the perfect life. So they're looking for false testimony. They're looking for people to lie about who Jesus is and what he's done. Because they've already decided in their minds what the result is going to be. This is all just, again, mere formality. They already know they want to kill him. So they're not interested in truth. And again, I think the application is so clear for for us today. When I talk to people, when you talk to people, you have to realize that there are a lot of lies about Jesus out there. There are a lot of lies about God. And when I talk to people, when I say the name of Jesus, or when I say God, you have to realize, and we have to realize, that they may be thinking something totally different than what we're thinking. And so when I talk to people, I say, look, what you do with Jesus is up to you, but at least if you're going to reject him, I want you to reject the real him. I want you to reject the truth about who he is and not some lies that you've heard. Because many people, and maybe some here today, would rather believe a lie about Jesus than the truth. And sometimes when we want to believe the lie, we'll, we'll seek false witnesses, we'll seek people that will tell us what we want to hear so we can just confirm our belief that Jesus is not, just was a mythical creature or was not God. He was just a good teacher. And, and so sometimes people will seek that out and say, see, I told you, you know, I was watching this guy on YouTube and, and he is an, is an atheist and he's a scientist and he says this, this, and this about, about God. And, and see, I told you it wasn't true. And that's what they were seeking because you already in your heart have determined, you, you, every person has a trial in their own heart. And Jesus is on trial in your heart. And you have to determine what the evidence really says or if you've already made up your mind what the answer is going to be before you let the evidence direct you to where it will take you. Now remember, Matthew is saying all this is happening to fulfill the scriptures. What was written in the past is now coming to pass. You see, the past at one time was the present and the present now was the future. So the past, at the past, they were talking about the future, which is now the present, and the present is now happening in the present, that for them was future. It's clear, isn't it? Because we live in the present, and Jesus has said some things about the future that are still the future, but one time the future is going to be the present, and we're going to see that all the things he says now about then will come true too. And if everything that's coming here comes to pass then I can trust that everything that's said about his second coming, about judgment, about heaven, is all going to come to pass as well. The Bible is very, very trustworthy. Over 300 prophecies about Jesus that have come true. The chances, the odds of that are um, almost unthinkable, insurmountable. They're looking for false witnesses, but they can't find any. Even though many false witnesses came, that blows my mind. There's a whole lot of people willing to come and lie. What's in it for them? Are they going to get money from them? I don't know. But, they're all, but none of their stories are matching up, and none, nobody can agree on anything, and it's, just, it's not going well. So at last they find two false witnesses that come forward, and they twist Jesus' words. They said, uh, they, they heard him say, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. That's not what he said. Right? You know that. He's not, in John chapter 2, he said, destroy this temple, and I will build it again in three days. He didn't say, I'm going to destroy the temple, 
But so they took his words and they twisted them. You ever had your words twisted? Oh, that's a, oh, man, that hurts so bad when people twist my words or when people twist your words and it happens all the time. I use a lot of words. I have a lot of things that can be twisted or misunderstood. And so these guys, even their testimony didn't agree, but yet they, they've got these two false witnesses that, that now they're accusing him of being a, um, a terrorist. So their judicial system here, this process is filled with lies. And, and the Bible is clear. God is so clear about lies. And, and in our culture, it's become so acceptable to lie, hasn't it? I mean, this is the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false testimony. You don't lie about somebody else. Don't lie about what's going on. It just, there are six things God hates. And, and he says, yea, seven are an abomination. Seven make him want to throw up. And one of those is a lying tongue. And, and in our culture, we just meet so many folks and there's so many situations where, where lying is just so convenient. It's so easy, isn't it? But know this, that God hates it. He loves the truth. He is the truth. And lying just messes things up. It makes it confusing. If you lie on a t- uh, lying about writing a paper, is, you know, lying in a court, lying about something you did or didn't do, Ananias and Sapphira lied of, about what they gave. You know, there's all kinds of ways we can lie, and all of it stinks. And so the, the, it just all gets in the way of, of justice being done and of truth and of relationships, really. So lies are, are filled in this, in this mock courtroom, all kinds of things that they shouldn't be doing that they're doing. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Well, it's not going well. So the high priest gets up, verse 62, that's Caiaphas, and he said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. Interesting. They've asked Jesus questions before, and he has confounded them with his answers. Is it better to pay, you know, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus would answer that question. And, just, and they'd leave them speechless. And so we certainly know Jesus is able to, it's not that he just can't figure out what to say. It's not that he's not able. He says, why aren't you saying, you know, answer something. And Jesus just kept saying, how many of you know that Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says there's a time to speak and a time to keep silent. And knowing the difference between those two is really important. And Jesus knew that there's a time to keep silent because were they going to be convinced? No matter what he said, was it going to change? Was he going to say, well, you know, I, I, I really am God and here's why. And, and, and they would go, oh, now I see what you're talking about. No, that wasn't going to happen. And I've met with people at different times and different occasions, counseling sessions where people come, they already have their mind made up, and I sit and listen. Okay, if that's what you decided, you know, I'm not going to change your mind. So go for it. Because there's no sense in speaking. I'm just going to waste my time and waste my words. Because you won't be convinced, or I won't be convinced, or whatever the case might be. Sometimes I can be like that. And so I think on a practical level, he's silent. Because he knows they're not going to believe him. He's not going to waste his words. But there's another reason. I didn't have you mark it. But Isaiah 53 is one of those scriptures that's being fulfilled. And if you haven't read Isaiah 53, an amazing, amazing passage. Isaiah 53 says that he was, speaking of the suffering servant, which is Jesus, in the Old Testament, says he was led 
as a lamb before the slaughterers and was silent, basically as a paraphrase. Just like a lamb being led to the slaughters was silent. And so he's, being, he's fulfilling scripture right here too. The, his silence is connecting him with Isaiah 53. He kept silent. That's hard to do, isn't it? To keep, I mean, if this was me, what would you be doing? If you were there and they're accusing you of these things, I'd be like, wait a second, I'd be justifying myself and I'd be, wait a second, no, this is not true. This is no, justice, justice, please, you know. And I'd be trying to squirm out of it or I'd be trying to, to let my side be known. I mean, you've done that, right? When something's happening, it's unfair. Oh, we, we'll fight and we'll argue to get our, our side heard. But Jesus is silent. He knows it's working out just as it should be. So the high priest, that probably makes him mad. The high priest is probably now really mad. And he said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now he invokes on Jesus an oath which would now compel him to give an answer. So now he will speak. And he says, it is as you said. Or if you notice, it is as is in italics, which means it's added by the translators to help us understand the wording. But literally in, in the Greek, it says, you said it. You said it. You got it. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, of the power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Right now, he's sitting in front of the, the, the chair of this earthly committee being judged. But he says, from now on, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Speaking again, when he will see him again will be after the millennium, when it, his second coming. It's as you said, yeah, I am. I mean, here... Jesus clearly says, that's who I am. So you can't ever say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. Right here he says it, I, I, am, I am the Savior. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you, who have, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And again, I take it back to us. What do you think? What do you think, folks, gathered here on this Sunday morning, August 26, 2012? What do you think? What do you do with Jesus? Just a good teacher? Just a mythological person? Or the Savior of the world? The answer to that question will change your whole life. The way you answer that question in your heart, truly, will change everything about your life, won't it? And I know those of us that have answered that question, we believe, you know, you are the Son of God. We believe you are who you say you are. We believe you're the Savior. Uh, you, you can't say that and believe that and be unchanged by that. And the truth, the, the reality of, of Christ and his work in our lives is changed lives. I mean, how do you argue with a man who's blind and then sees? How do you argue with a crippled person who then can walk? And Man, I was a blind, crippled leper before I met Jesus. And he sorted out my mind and he sorted out my life and he continues his work in my life to this day. What do I think? I'm betting he is who he says he is. And I got proof in my life uh, enough 
to confirm that for me. But look what they think. They answered and said, he is deserving of death. Wow. Because really, he's deserving of worship. But they've come to the conclusion. And you know, there, is a, there are a lot of people that are very, very uh, openly against Christ, aren't there? I've heard they don't allow prayer in schools. I think we've prayed a few times today, haven't we? But there are people that just want to kill Jesus. They just don't want anything to do with him. They'd rather not bother with him. They just do anything they can to disprove him and to to kick him out of here and kick him out of there. And they would say he's deserving of death. Let him die. Let's get on with this. this, Let's get this Jesus thing over with. Let's move on with things that make sense and are reasonable in our lives. And there are many that come to that conclusion. But others, again, would come to the conclusion he's deserving of worship. He's deserving of honor. Because right now, at this very time that they're saying he's deserving of death, what he is doing is completely sacrificing his life for the good of others. For my good, for your good. And that's an honorable thing. Deserving of worship. But they don't see it that way. They're not understanding that. Now, it gets harder. I told you guys, this is intense. This is it, it, to picture Jesus going through these things. I mean, I have come to appreciate the beauty of holiness. Jesus was nothing to look at. If he was sitting among us today, you wouldn't recognize him. He wouldn't stand out. He wouldn't like be a Greek god and, you know, tan and perfect hair and all that's muscles. And you, you wouldn't, he would fit right in. You, you probably wouldn't even have greeted him. He'd be standing by his chair and, you know, you wouldn't even have greeted him, wouldn't even notice he was there. He's just average guy to look at. That's what Isaiah 53 says. But his personality, his character, because he was so different. Have you ever met someone like that? He's just so different. They're so beautiful. Their heart is beautiful. And I've come to appreciate the beauty of holiness in Christ. And what I see here is here is the truth. Here's the beauty of holiness. And look at verse 67. They spat in his face and they beat him. This beautiful man who loved children, who set people free, who healed, who touched lepers, who ate with sinners and tax collectors, who, was, who fought for the marginalized, the ones that no one else would deal with. And here they are. They spit in his face. So as he's going through this, remember, he's still, there's this fragrance of the spike nard that probably still can be smelled from dinner. And now dripping from his beard is the spit of these people who are completely out of control. They have become, uh, they have lost control of their emotions. What it takes to spit in a person's face, you talk about, you know, who degrading. And they spit in his face and they beat him. We know from other gospel writers he was blindfolded. And he was bound and they struck him with the palms. They slapped him with the palms of their hands. And he, now if I'm Jesus at this point, all right, I tried to hold back the angels, but bring them on. God, bring on your legions of angels. Let's do this right now. Let's get this over with. Fry these guys. That's what I would be doing, right? But how many of you know it takes a lot more strength to hold back than it does to let loose? 
Anybody that thinks, you know, those pictures of Jesus as the weak guy, and he's got the little lamb on his shoulders, and he looks like he hasn't eaten in about six months, and, you know, I don't know what he looked like physically, but morally and emotionally, he was a rock. I don't care what you say, because I worked in bars for a lot of years, and I've seen people lose it emotionally over nothing. And they think they're strong, and they think they're tough, and they're going to show other people how strong and tough they are. The strong people are the ones that don't need to prove they're strong. So I think the people spitting and the people slapping are the ones that think they're strong, but they're so weak. And Jesus is taking it. It takes a lot more strength to take it than to dish it out. They're slapping him. And the Bible tells us he despised the shame, doesn't it? Hebrews 12 says, despising the shame, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him. He despised. It's not like he enjoyed this. He despised it. And they, they slapped him. They said prophesy to us Christ. Who is the one who struck you? Because he couldn't see. He was blindfolded. Oh you're the, you're the Messiah. You're the Savior. Oh why don't you tell us. Why don't you tell us who was hitting you then. If you're, if you're so great. And they're, now they're teasing him. And now the, the focus shifts to a different trial. Now Peter is in some ways on trial. Because he's there. He's warming himself. He, he's gone. Peter has followed the group into the high priest's house. The pri- high priest's house, not like our houses. There's an entry gateway, and it opens into a courtyard. And if you've ever been to a hotel, you know how all the rooms are kind of around the central courtyard. Uh, so there's the center area. And in the, the house at that time, the high priest's house would have been like that, a center courtyard and rooms all around that central courtyard. So they had led Jesus off to another room. Peter had, uh, John and Peter were both following, and John had an, uh, enabled Peter to get access into the house, and Peter's there with the servants around the fire because it's nighttime and it's cold. And he's been sort of watching this thing, and Jesus has been in a room. Now they lead Jesus out to a different room to a different place. And, and the attention shifts to Peter. Let's read this quickly here. Verse 69. Peter sat outside in the courtyard. And as a servant girl came to him, uh, saying, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you were saying. Wait a second. Really? I mean, again, Peter, you're the one that just said, I will not deny you. You're the one that said, where else will we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. You're the one that said, you know, I, 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 want, I, I want to be sitting at your right hand. I want to be the greatest. He was one arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And here he is saying, oh, I, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know the guy. I don't know what you're saying. I, no, not me. You got the wrong guy. Verse 71. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him. And said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath. I do not know. I swear, I don't know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. You ever been betrayed by your speech? Now, imagine someone from Georgia going up to New York and trying to convince them that he's not from the South or she. There's an accent. He, Peter was from Galilee. And there was a distinct accent that the Galileans had. 
And so when he says, no, I'm not one, I was never with that guy, they say, wait a second, we recognize your accent. We recognize the way you talk. And then look what Peter does next. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. So it gets stronger all the way through each time he denies the Lord. It gets stronger. And now he is cursing it to prove that he's not a follower of Jesus he starts to use foul language. Oh, well, he speaks like that. Yeah, you're right. No one who follows Jesus would ever talk like that. Have you ever had your speech betray you? And don't think it's just your verbal. It, it can be your, your... We send a lot of emails, and we type a lot on Facebook. And, and you know, that's speech, too. It's, it's thoughts that are turned into words, but they're written down. And I wonder if your, your Facebook page would betray you that you're not a follower of Jesus. Or the things you say at home in the privacy of your own home, would your speech betray you? You're cursing, you're swearing, your foul language. The things you say, you know, the, the, James said you know, the mouth is the final frontier of the Christian life. Man, God get, God get everything sorted out, but the mouth, man, that's a tough one sometimes. In my life, personally, cursing was the first thing that went from my life. A foul, I had a foul mouth. Oh my goodness, I had a foul mouth. I worked in bars for so long. I just was in that, that lifestyle, and I had a terrible mouth. And when I got saved, it was the first thing Jesus cleaned up was my mouth. And I, can't, I, I don't think I've uttered a curse word in 17 years. And cursing is the attempt, of, someone has said, uh, cursing is the attempt of, of stupid people to express themselves. I didn't say it. I'm just repeating it. Uh, Sometimes we think if we curse, it, it just somehow means more. When I went off to, um, to school, one of the things that people, that, that one of the guys that I had, was one of my teachers had noticed, told a friend, was that he noticed that I never cursed. You stand out when you don't curse. You stand out when your language is clean. And the Bible tells us, put away coarse jesting and filthy language out of your mouth. Put that stuff away. Well, well, Peter uses that to try to show and prove that he's not a Christian. He's not a follower of this Christ. And he swears, I don't know him. That's the third time. And look what happens next. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Just as Jesus had said, Peter said, Man, even if everybody else denies you, I'm not going to deny you. Peter, tonight... Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. No, no, not me, Jesus, not me. I'd never do that. And immediately a rooster crowed. And look at this, is fascinating as we close up. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Now what you don't get here, but what we get from Luke, is that somehow Peter was now within eyeshot of Jesus. Now, this is fascinating. Hang with me. I know it's getting late, but hang with me just for two more minutes here. When Peter begins to swear and curse, Jesus hears it, and he looks over at Peter. He doesn't say a word, because if Jesus had said, Peter, I can't believe you're saying that, then he would have sold Peter out. Peter would have been discovered that he did know Jesus. So he looks silently at Peter and I don't think he went, mm, you know, like that. I don't think it was like, I'm going to get you. I think he looked at him with those eyes of love. 
bearing all of Peter's sins. And I think Peter learned more about himself than he did about Jesus in that moment. And so Jesus looks at Peter as he's with the spit still dribbling from his own beard, from being spit on, with his face bruised. And he looks at Peter. And Peter, in an instant, is disgusted with himself, I believe. You ever felt that? I think everybody needs to feel that. Because Peter remembered what Jesus had said and he realized what he'd done. I did the very thing I didn't want to do. You ever been there? You say, oh, wretched man that I am, I can't believe I did that. That's where it starts. It's where This is the beginning of the rest of Peter's life. The next time Peter sees Jesus won't be until they're out fishing. You see the resurrected Christ. He's, not gonna, he's gonna get to the grave, the body's gonna be gone. And I think it's such a He went out and wept bitterly. We're gonna see Judas's story follow out in, in chapter twenty seven. Have you ever wept bitterly over the sin in your own life? You ever just come face to face and, and just been disgusted with yourself in terms of your sin? In terms of the way you've denied Jesus or the way you've, you've lived. That's a good place to be. Man, I can't. It's a good place to be. Don't be ashamed of that place. It is a good place to be. It's the place where everything else starts. When you feel the gaze of Jesus upon you. That gaze of love and invitation. And you say, man. And you just, I think Peter just hung his head. And the good news is, look, the rest of the story goes really well for Peter, doesn't it? He says, Jesus says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Make sure you tell Peter I'm alive. What hope, what promise, huh? Let's have the praise team come on up as we close out the service for today. It's intense and we're still in the middle of the night. Uh, The cross is before us. Uh, It's important stuff. Why? Because... This is the cost of redemption. This is the cost of sin. And I hope we can just appreciate a little bit more today the cost of sin, the cost of of my life, my redemption, my eternity. It didn't come cheap. It came free, but not cheap, right? Free, but not cheap. Let's pray, and we'll sing a final song to close. let's, Let's all stand up before we pray. Father, we are just before you in awe of who you are and of the length that you would go to to satisfy mercy and justice. That you would provide for an innocent substitute to buy out of prison and slavery guilty lawbreakers. And you would offer that salvation to everybody. Every man, every woman, every race, every nation. One God, one Savior, one way for all time and for all people. And Lord, I pray that as we close, if there's anybody in here that um, has either been following at a distance or has already wanted to put you to death in their lives, that, Lord, maybe you would speak to their hearts today. 
about who you are and what you want to do in their lives that, you want to, that you're knocking and that they might open up their heart to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's close with a song and you'll be excused.